Um, the reading, yes, it's on. The reading this evening comes from Philippians uh, 1, verses 12 through and including 26. Paul's chains advanced the gospel. Now I want to, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guards and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayer and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that all I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether life or by death. For me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what will I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with you all, of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Amen. Thanks, Howard. It's quite dark in here, isn't it? Just hope I can read. Right. I'm not as young as I used to be. Let's pray. Thank you. (laughs) Father, we pray that you would teach us about our purpose in life. Give us the right attitude to that purpose and equip us to deal with times of difficulty. Amen. 
Could you try to have that passage that we've just heard read open in front of you? I will be referring to it quite a lot, and I think it would help you to have it open. It's on page 1178 of the Sparkling New Bibles in the, uh, in the church. Uh, as Neil said, uh, Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter, and that passage we've just heard read is clearly very personal to him and very specific to his circumstances. Nonetheless, I think we'll find there's a lot we can learn from it. And this evening, I want to focus on three things. First of all, our purpose in life. Second, our attitude to that purpose. And third, how we react when we're in times of difficulty. So, let's start with our purpose in life. Now, I'm going to do something slightly uh, less usual. In a moment, I'm going to ask you all to close your eyes and for just one minute, think about what you regard as your purpose. In other words, ask yourself, what is my purpose in life? Just for one minute. Is that all right? So, if you'd all just close your eyes and for one minute... Ask yourself that question. Okay, that's your lot. Can you just hold those thoughts? By the way, I'm not going to ask you to shout them out or anything like that. Just think, hold them. And let's turn our mind to what Paul saw as his purpose in life. It's not difficult to discern from this passage. Just look at verse 20, for example. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that, and here it is, now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. Paul's purpose in life, he says, was to exalt Jesus. And in the next verse, he says, uh, for me to live is Christ. His life was about Christ. It was about serving Christ. Indeed, if you go back to verse 1, which we heard read last week, he calls himself a servant of Christ. Exalt Christ. Live for Christ. Be a servant for Christ. That indicates what Paul's purpose is, doesn't it? Uh, Specifically, of course, that manifested itself in his concern for the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, verse 18 makes that clear. The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. That was his big calling, to proclaim Jesus. Though that wasn't his only aim. You may have noticed right at the end of our reading, glance down to verse 25, he realised he had a responsibility for the Christians in the church at at Philippi. I will continue uh, with uh, all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. He saw he had a responsibility for them. Well, now that's Paul. Let's turn back to ourselves. When you were thinking a few minutes ago, did you regard your purpose as something you choose, as in, I've decided to devote my life to X? Or did you regard it as something given to you, as in, 
I've discovered and now understand that my purpose in life is why. You see, I suspect that most people in the West today regard their purpose as something they choose. That's postmodern philosophy. And it's very uh, easy to absorb. Indeed, I think a lot of Christians absorb it without even knowing they have absorbed it. But yet, it's inconsistent with the Bible. Again, let's think about Paul. It's implicit in what's said in those verses I read out that Paul saw his purpose not as his choice at all, but as something that is God-given. I think probably his most characteristic description of himself is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That, or something very close to it, appears in the first verse of over half of his letters. In fact, he expresses it even more strongly in 1 Timothy. He says he's an apostle of Jesus by the command of God. As far as, as, far as Paul was concerned, he didn't have a choice in this. He was fulfilling the purpose given to him by God. Now, blatantly, we are not an apostle in the way that Paul was. And consequently, the detail of his calling doesn't apply to us. But this basic point that our purpose is given to us by God, and also the basic point that our purpose involves exalting Jesus involves living for Jesus, involves serving Jesus, those things applied not just to Paul, but they apply to us as well. The 17th century Westminster Shorter Catechism contains the question, it's question number one actually, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, we'll come to the second bit of that in a minute. But let's look at the first. Man's chief end is to glorify God. That is exactly what the Bible says. You're my chief end. It's to glorify God. Uh, Isaiah says that we were created for the glory of God. Isaiah 43.7, if you want to look at it up afterwards. And that point comes throughout the Bible. Go right back to Genesis chapter 2. Adam has been created. He's placed in the Garden of Eden. Why? To work the garden and, and, and keep it. In other words, he was called upon to serve God in realizing the potential of the wonderful creation that God had made. Go on into the law, the Mosaic law. What do we hear? about the the purpose of the people of Israel. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. And of course, both the Mosaic law and subsequently the prophets explain what that means in practice. And in particular, they explain that it means obeying God. 
Jeremiah, for example, says, well, he reminds the people that God had earlier said, I shall be your God and you shall be my people. Walk in all the ways I command you. That's Jeremiah 7, verse 23. And of course, the New Testament also says all of those things. Uh, For example, this is Paul in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever you do. Back to what Neil was saying, not just here, seven days a week, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And then Colossians 3.23, we looked at this uh, not that long ago. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not human masters. So what's our purpose? Every one of our purposes Our purpose is to glorify God and specifically to exalt Christ, to live for Christ, to serve Christ, to obey Christ. That's our purpose. Okay. What's our attitude to that purpose? We're going to do the same thing as we did a few minutes ago. I would like you, in this moment, to shut your eyes And just think about your response to that. Uh, Just reflect on how you feel about it. Think about that purpose and say, am I pleased that that's my purpose in life? Am I confused by it? Am I happy? Am I a bit disappointed by it? Am I even a bit fed up with it? How do you respond to that being your purpose? One minute, all eyes shut. Right, your minute's up again. Once again, just hold those thoughts while we look at Paul's reaction. And this really won't take long, because it's pretty obvious from our reading today that Paul was very happy about it. I would say excited by it. That that comes through right in the first verse. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. There's a, there's a, a speed about it that shows that he's really quite excited by this. And he says it expressly when he talks about Christ being preached. He says, because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. He's actually happy about his God-given purpose. And what's more, he expects his readers to share his joy. I quoted it earlier, verse 25. I will continue with you for your progress and joy. He expects that Christians will share this joy in what God has done and the purpose God has given to us all. And of course, many, many Christians do indeed share that, and I hope that we do here today. The truth is that a number of Christians don't share that joy. And it may well be that some of you are in that position. And if you are, you're in good company. There are a lot of Christians in that position. And we need to ask ourselves, why? What is it that is stopping us having that joy and excitement of Paul? Now, I'm sure... There are many, many reasons out there, and I'm not going to examine them all today. I, in fact, just want to look at one cause of a lack of joy, which I think is frequently overlooked, 
and in my experience is quite common. And it's this. I think an awful lot of Christians, including Christians in evangelical churches like this, relapse without knowing it into legalism. Now, I hope that most people here, I hope none of you, fool yourself into thinking that you can work your way into God's favour, that you can do things such that you're deserving of God's favour or even deserving of his forgiveness, because we can't do that. It's by grace you are saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. That's Ephesians 2.8. No, our acceptance by God is solely on account of God's grace manifesting itself in the death of Jesus. That is why we are accepted by God. That is why we are forgiven. Now, I trust that no one here would contradict that. But how does that relate to what I've been talking about earlier? that we're called upon to spend our lives glorifying God, exalting Christ, living for Christ, obeying Christ. How do those fit together? Before someone comes up to me afterwards and points it out, I'm not actually going to answer that question today. What I am going to focus on is a mistaken answer which I think accounts for why a number of Christians lose their joy in the gospel. And the mistaken answer is this. I have a feeling a number of Christians somehow imagine that God has said something like this. I will forgive you if you will do your best in future to serve me and obey me Notwithstanding, that means you won't live the life that is good for you and will have to do things that are against your interests. Put simply, uh, there's a danger we imagine that God's done a kind of deal with us. I will forgive you and I will give you eternal life if you give up your current life and serve me in the future. That's the deal. Now the difficulty with that is, if that's what we view the gospel as being, then what we're doing is fundamentally we end up working for our eternal life. And it's not surprising that we end up finding that a burden. Not least because we will fail. We know sin continues to dwell within us. But that's not the gospel. And it's a distortion of the character of God. The gospel is this. That we are saved by grace, through faith, and this not of ourselves. We're saved by what Jesus has done. And it is nothing to do with what we have done, how we've behaved, what our attitudes have been whether before we became Christians or after we became Christians. When God, at the final judgment, says, is this person to receive eternal life? The next question will not be, 
well, let's examine their life since they became a Christian. There's only one question. Is this person united with Christ through faith? Yes or no? Answer, yes. And by God's grace, we have eternal life. We do not work our way into God's presence. And what about the character of God? I think the easiest way to consider this is by thinking about Eve. You you will understand this in due course. I've already mentioned the, uh, uh, the Garden of Eden and how God placed Adam initially there and then Eve in order to glorify him by working the garden. Um, what happened next? Well, we all know, don't we? It was the fall. We're very familiar with it, but I just want to read it again for a particular purpose. This is Genesis chapter 3. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The devil said, are you really saying God said that? How most astonishing. And how did Eve respond? The woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Eve, first of all, corrected the snake who had gravely exaggerated. But she did say, yes, there is a restriction on us. We mustn't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. Uh, Incidentally, in the margins, in so doing, Eve, at least in this respect, was rather better than a lot of people today who suggest that God didn't impose any restrictions and doesn't impose any restrictions. It's blatantly obvious from the Bible that he does. But Eve at least got past there, but the snake wasn't finished. Verse 4 in chapter 3. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. God's misled you, said the devil. Take a look at the tree, it's good. It's not bad for you. And what did Eve do? When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Eve looked at the tree and thought, yeah, it'd be really nice, really good for me to eat that. And so putting what she perceived to be in her interests ahead of what God had commanded, she defied God. And we all know what happened next. But I don't want to look at what happened next. I want you to imagine for a moment that Eve had decided not to defy God. Imagine that she'd done this. Imagine that verse 6 here said this. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she realised it would be good for her to eat it. But bearing in mind God's command, she didn't. Would everything then be all right? Well, blatantly, it would be a lot better than defying God, wouldn't it? But there would still be a problem. Because, you see, Eve would have gone on her way 
believing that she'd not been able to do something that would really have been good for her because God had told her not to. And obeying God would have been a burden to her. You see, worse still, she would have had a view of God's character that suggested God is the kind of God who commands us to do things against our own interests, and worse, covers that up by pretending it is in our own interests. And her trust in the goodness and love of God would have been fatally undermined, even though she decided to obey God. The danger is that we as Christians can unintentionally slip into that position, believing we're not doing things that would be good for us because God commanded them, and thus having a view of God that does not do justice to his goodness and love. The key point is this. The snake was wrong. The devil lied. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, God gave Adam and Eve, he's given to us the whole of his creation for enjoyment. And he simply said, by the way, there's one thing you mustn't do because it will harm you. And he was right. And that's true of all of God's requirements. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a light to my feet and a lamp to my path. God's law is good. A few moments ago, I quoted Jeremiah uh, uh, 7.23. I shall be your God and you shall be my people. Walk in all the ways that I command you. But there isn't actually a full stop at that point. What it actually says is, walk in all the ways I command you, that it may go well with you. God commands things because they're good for us. Paul realized that. This is what he wrote in Romans chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 12. The law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. More fundamentally, and coming back towards our passage this evening, when we serve God... When we glorify him in that way, we fulfill the purpose for which we were made by a good and loving God. That's critical. We don't just fulfill the purpose for which we were made, period. We were made by a good and loving God. And unsurprisingly, the result of that is satisfying. It's fulfilling to us subjectively. God created the world so that it would be so. And consequently, there's no conflict between serving God and glorifying him and our own interests properly understood. God's a loving God. The two go together. That's why the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism says that man's chief aim is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God wants us to enjoy 
that process of fellowship with him and glorifying him. And again, Paul understood that. Paul understood his purpose. And unlike Eve, he was so confident in the character of God, so confident in his goodness and love, that he knew that by following that purpose, he would have a fulfilled life. He would be pursuing what was good for him as well. We need to remember that. We need that to be our attitude as well. But things weren't good for Paul, were they? And we need to ask ourselves how we react when things are not good. I'm not going to have another minute out like uh, previously. I can see some people deeply disappointed uh, by by that. But, But let's just think. Paul, as we heard, was in prison. He was clearly under threat, such as he might be executed. And irrespective of that... He says that some people were deliberately stirring up trouble for him outside prison. Now, how would you react if something like that was happening to you? How would I react? Actually, I know how I would react, and it wouldn't be good. I I know I'd be very upset, actually potentially drifting into downright depression. And I know I'd be frustrated... And that would quite quickly creep into anger. And I know I would be saying, God, why have you put me here? Why? Why is this happening to me? Get me out of here. But Paul doesn't do that, does he? Paul is is happy, as we've observed. He rejoices. And in spite of the threat to his life, verse 19, he says... I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. He's confident in his deliverance. Why? What's his secret? Well, I'd suggest that that confidence that he has derives from his confidence in four other things. Two of them we've already looked at. He was confident about his purpose. He was confident about God's character, his love, his his goodness. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, Paul wrote in Romans 8.28. And he knew that in, in his life. But there were two other things in which he was confident. First of all, he was confident in God's control over his life. Now, we've thought about that a lot Uh, in recent times, so I'm not going to go into it in detail. But but just note, it's implicit in what he says. Uh, You can only say, I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what happened will turn out for my deliverance, if you are confident that God has the power to deliver on, on that. And he had that power. Being loved by someone is is good in and of itself. But if they don't have any power to help us, it's of limited use. But you see, God's infinite love is supported by his infinite power. And that's where our security lies. Paul had confidence in in his uh, uh, power. 
And hence, he had security. And then fourthly, and finally, Paul was confident that death is not the end, but that something better lies beyond it. Did you notice, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. You see, Paul knew that Jesus had died and that he was forgiven in consequence of that. And he also knew that Jesus had been risen, sorry, Jesus had risen from the dead and that he was merely the first fruits. That all those who have faith in Jesus will ultimately rise themselves. And so he was, he was confident that death was not the end or the entry into something dreadful, but for those with faith in, in, in Christ, the entry into something great. He wrote this in Romans 6 verse 5, For if we have been united with Jesus in death, in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. And the consequence of that was that he wrote a couple of chapters later, Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You see, Paul saw his sufferings in the context of his confidence in his purpose, in God's character, in God's control and power, and in the fact that death is the gateway for those in Christ to something greater. That was why he was able to be joyful through his sufferings, not just joyful, but see how God's purposes were being fulfilled in his sufferings. And what about us? In the morning services, uh, the sermon series in the morning services, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 6. It's only one chapter back, uh, one page back, rather, is uh, what what I meant in, in the Bibles. And as Eddie pointed out last week, the first thing that that tells us is that we're involved in a battle. And not just a battle against people. And the, the lives of the apostles, including Paul and preeminently Jesus, exemplify that fact. The Bible constantly warns us that there will be difficult things happening in our lives. Things will not always be good. And of course, that was true of Paul when he was writing to the Philippians. But that passage in Ephesians chapter 6 doesn't leave us there. It tells us what the response should be to that. It tells us how we can overcome that. I'm just going to read an extract from it. This is actually uh, Ephesians 6, beginning at verse 13, on page uh, 1177. Therefore... Put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, 
with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The things we have been looking at today are parts of that armour. Paul's understanding of his purpose, his attitude to his purpose, and his reaction to his difficulties demonstrated that he had put that armour on. And we need to follow his example. Because if we do so, we will share that joy and excitement of Paul in living fulfilled lives to the glory of God. Amen.